We're going to jump into Matthew 11 tonight. That's kind of what we're doing here. And uh, so before we get started, let me kind of set this all up. Is uh, You're probably aware that there's all these different kinds of disorders, okay? And they have um, different acronyms. Is it an acronym, I guess, for them, right? Acronyms like ADD, ADHD, OCD, LMNOP, like all these different ones, right? Well, I, I knew this and I had forgotten about it, but there is a disorder called ODD, which is Oppositional Defiant Disorder. Pretty much you can't listen or follow the rules, okay? Which I'm like, yes, every child has that, right? But there is, I guess there is a, uh, there is like a difference between like I'm a kid and I just don't listen and I don't like authority to I have an opposition to authority. And I actually have met a few kids who have been diagnosed with ODD and to say they're a handful is an understatement because these kids from the earliest of ages are terrifying. So one of them um, was a family friend of ours and this kid, when he was like, I think three or four, he was wrestling with my dad and my dad, uh, you know, just having fun. They're, they're you know, on, uh, in the living room and all the kids are piling on. They had like four kids and all the kids are piling on. They're having a great time. Except this kid who was diagnosed with ODD, and this is one of many times in his life where he got in serious trouble, but this is like three years old. My dad's pen fell out of his pocket and he wasn't paying attention. This kid takes the pen and stabs him in the back with his pen. At three or four, I'm like, dude, this kid already knows how to like get a shank and like, you know, he is setting himself up for a life of success here. And so um, what's interesting is they diagnose these kids with authority issues. And that's actually what Jesus is going to talk about today, is he's going to say, um, not, do, not only do certain people have ODD, but we all have authority issues. And he's going to say that we have them on a cosmic scale. But before we jump into that, let me give you a little background. If you're not a Bible person, you don't know about the Bible, we're in the book of Matthew. And so if you have your Bibles, you can go there, Matthew 11. And what's happening so far is in this chapter... We have seen John the Baptist, who is like this guy who preceded Jesus, and he was the forerunner, and he said, Jesus is the Messiah, he's coming, um, you need to follow him. Well, John ends up in prison, and in prison, he asked this question, it's a very important question. He says to Jesus, through messengers, are you the one, meaning, are you the Messiah? Are you the one that we've been waiting for? Are you the person that's going to save us? And this is like the question. Every thinking person for the last 2,000 years has had to ask themselves this question. Who is Jesus? Is he who he claims to be or is he something else? And so the rest of the chapter is going to be a response to the question of who Jesus is. And so first he talks about John, but now he's going to switch the conversation and Jesus is going to talk about those people who refuse to believe in him, who refuse to accept that he is the Messiah. And what's interesting is if you were to ask people who are not Christians, or you were to think about in your mind people that you know that are not believers, maybe you yourself, why they don't believe in Jesus, they would probably give you a ton of different answers. One, like how could I believe in some old story written 2,000 years ago by some uh, uneducated people? It just sounds like a fairy tale. It's a myth. Or how could I believe in a God when there's so much pain and suffering in the world? Or, or they may come up with a, a, a number of different objections of why don't, they don't believe in Jesus. But Jesus is about to explain why we have this authority issue and why we don't believe in him. So all of us are naturally have this disposition where we're going to reject Jesus and his message. 
And so the reason why people do not believe is not for lack of evidence or because they don't get to talk with Jesus or because they didn't get to witness his miracles or because it's hard to believe in the resurrection. No, no, no. Although evidence and all that kind of stuff is great. And by the way, I spent years of my life researching the evidence for Christianity, years of my life. And I think it's awesome. And I love talking through that kind of stuff. But the fundamental issue is not, is there enough evidence? Because we can research all day long. We can look at the evidence for the rest of our lives, yet it may not compel us to believe, no matter how, uh, how persuasive it may be. Jesus is about to tell us that there is something else happening, the reason why we reject him. So here we go. Uh, Matthew 11, verse 16 says this, to what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang the dirge for you, and you did not mourn. So we have no idea what this means, right? You, you did not grow up in this culture. This seems very foreign to you, and it is. But here's kind of what Jesus is saying. is He's saying that when people heard John's message and his message, back in the day and everyone since then, because we have it written down, um, the people who reject him are like little kids who are throwing a fit and refuse to engage. So here's the context. is Back then, they, uh, the parents would take their kids to the marketplace, and that's where all the trading was done. That's where they had purchased all their supplies, and so it was a, kind of a common area where people would meet. And as the parents are doing their shopping and their bartering and things like that, the kids would go off and they would play in the marketplace. And there was really only two games that they would play. They would play wedding or funeral. All right, those are the only two games. It's because those were the two main events that took place in that culture. Now, our version of this would be something like cops and robbers or cowboys and Indians, right? Although that one's not politically correct anymore, so we can't do that, but whatever. Okay, and so those are kind of the games that they would play. And so he gives us this illustration in which these kids are in a marketplace and they're playing, and one of the people in the group goes to another person and they say, hey, um, let's play wedding. Okay, because weddings were a big deal. They would be like a week-long ceremony. There'd be tons of celebration, very joyful occasion. Uh, and so they would play wedding. So they go to the kid, hey, let's play wedding. Kid's response is, I don't want to play wedding. I'm in a bad mood, and I don't want to pretend like I'm happy right now. So he goes, okay, all right, fine. Let's play funeral then, because that's all about mourning and wailing, and those would be pretty dramatic experiences back then. In fact, um, people would... Would, and this still, still takes place around the world, is they would hire professional mourners to come out to the funerals and wail loudly at the funerals, okay? And so as you can imagine, kids would probably go, oh, that's kind of funny, and so let's play that. And so they would play funeral, and so the same kid says, well, I don't want to play funeral because it's too sad, and I don't want to play sad right now. And you go, wait, 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 you didn't want to play wedding because you're in a bad mood and you don't want to be happy, but you don't want to play funeral because you're in a bad mood and you don't want to be sad. I'm beginning to think that what, no matter what game I suggest, you're not going to want to play at all. Now, have you ever encountered someone like this before? Yes? Okay, if you've ever been around a child, you understand how this goes. Is my kids, they will be such a pain in my rear that I, would, I try to just make fun of it now. I try to just have a game with it, okay? Because they are so difficult sometimes. Lord bless them, but so difficult. So uh, my, my son is especially like this right now. There's no reasoning with him. You cannot negotiate anything. He is just going to say no to whatever you suggest. And so I will just increasingly suggest things to see if I can get him to say yes. So I'll be like, uh, hey, buddy, do you want to eat dinner? No. All right. Uh, do you want to eat ice cream for dinner? No. 
Okay, do you want to go to Disneyland for dinner? No. Do you want to have pixie dust sprinkled on you so you can fly? No. I'm like, well, I'll give up then. I don't know what you want from me, kid. You know, like I've tried. And it becomes pretty clear that he is going to do and say anything in order to avoid what I'm suggesting right now. That in that moment, he has some pretty serious authority issues with me. And he comes by this naturally. And so what Jesus does here is, he says, um, it is becoming clear that no matter what I say or what I do, you are going to reject me. That it doesn't matter. And so he starts to compare, and he says this in, um, in verse 18. He says, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. Okay, so he says, so let's take John for example. You hear John's message, and John's message is pretty extreme. He comes out and he says, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. That means you need to turn away from your sin, your corrupt lifestyle. You need to turn back to God because God's about to do something really big in the world. And he's a pretty, pretty crazy guy. He's a wild man, wears camel's hair. He eats locusts. And their reason for rejecting John is, yeah, he's too weird, man. That guy's weird. He lives in the desert. He has his crazy beard, dreadlocks, eats locusts. That dude is weird, and his message is way too heavy, way too harsh. I'm just not into it. Then continues on in verse 19. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say he is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So you say this about John, but then you turn around and say the exact opposite about Jesus. Whoa, he's too normal. He dresses like everybody else. He hangs out with common people. He eats and drinks the same stuff as everybody else. And his message, way too accepting. He lets sinners come to him. He will talk to whoever. No, 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 no. We, we can't do that because God can't be like that. And you begin to get this sense that the reason why they're rejecting John's message and Jesus' message um, is because they just refuse to accept anything that they hear, Right? They're, they're inconsistent. They're incoherent. One's too heavy, too extreme, too weird. The other one's too normal and too accepting. And you go, you know, I'm beginning to think that there's nothing that I say that, will, um, that you will listen to. And so Jesus then addresses our main issue, a reason for rejecting him. And it's not a lack of evidence. And again, I love evidence. I love looking at the resurrection. But here's how I know it's not evidence. One, because Jesus tells me, but other, because I've seen it with my own eyes time and time again. So something crazy that happened a few years ago is I have um, an acquaintance and a, a part of a, a really close, whatever, a friend. Okay, I have a friend. And I know this is true because I heard it from the person, whatever. This person is not really sure what they believe about God. Definitely not ready to give their life over to Jesus. And they were experiencing a tragedy in which they were diagnosed with cancer. And so they're really wrestling with their own mortality and wrestling with, you know, what's going to happen to me. And the craziest thing happens, and I've never experienced anything like this, but he is sitting at, I think it's the doctor's office, sitting at the doctor's office, and a woman who does not speak English looks at him and begins to speak perfect English to him and says, I know about your cancer, explains the cancer, and says, God's going to heal you, and then doesn't see that person again, and he is healed of cancer, okay? So you would go, whoa, that's freaky, that's weird. She doesn't speak English, she knows exactly what's wrong with me, and she says, God's going to heal me, and he does. And so you would think, if this happened to you, what would you do? I'm a Christian, you know, like, I'm into it, yes, for sure. What does he do? Not interested, 
And it's not just this one person, because it's like, ah, oh, it's a coincidence. That's weird for sure, but mm, I don't know. Atheists, I, I watch atheist debates and I watch their talks all the time because I find them interesting. And one of the questions that people often pose to them is, um, if God audibly spoke to you, would you then believe in him? And the response is, no. I would think that I'm having some kind of uh, mental delusion. I'm, I'm, there's something mentally wrong with me. Okay, so God literally parted like the, the clouds in the sky and said, you need to believe in me. You would think, there's something wrong with me. You wouldn't believe? No, wouldn't believe. So there's nothing that God could do to make you believe. No, there isn't. There's no amount of miracles. There's no nothing. And so Jesus understands that it's not for a lack of evidence or experience or there's something in us that intuitively just rejects Jesus, rejects God. And it's the same reason why kids reject your suggestions. So the reason why my son or my daughter rejects my suggestions to go to Disneyland, to have fairy dust, whatever, okay, is because it wasn't his idea. You will learn very quickly as a parent that you somehow have to, um, and actually this is true in marriage all the time as well, is you have to somehow like convince them that it's their idea, and you're like, that's, oh yeah, for sure we should do that, you know? And you're like, ha ha, sucker. You know, like, I made you th think that you thought of that. Why? What is it in us that I will, okay, I will do this all the time, and my wife will do this all the time. We're discussing where we're gonna eat dinner. Okay, one of the most traumatic experiences that I have during my week is we get in the fattest arguments about where we're going to have dinner. And I have noticed about myself that sometimes I will say no because she su suggested it. I'm like, I kind of wanted that, but she said it, so I'm not going there now, you know? <laughs> like, I I'm being honest here, okay? Sometimes that happens. And it's because within us, we all have authority issues, Jesus is going to say the reason why you reject him is not for all those other reasons. Those are a smokescreen because you can have those questions answered. In fact, you can experience some miraculous things, but you can still reject Jesus. Why? Because you and I have this cosmic authority issue that there is something within each and every one of us that says we hate the idea of God, or at least a God that wants to control and be the ultimate authority in our life. It is a thing that we will resist the most in life, that someone will take over, especially God will take over the authority and the keys of our life. We will do anything we can to avoid having to submit to a God like that. So when you say, it's not because there's not enough evidence or because these questions or because these objections, Jesus says, if you are not willing to even consider allowing me to be the ultimate authority in your life, then you are never going to know me. You're never going to experience that transforming relationship. You're never going to find the truth because if you're not even open to the idea of submission to God, then you're never going to find him. See, C.S. Lewis, um, he has a great book and I've talked about it before. He has a, a book called The Great Divorce. And his claim in this book is that, and I, I think this is true because the scripture seems to bear this out, is that the doors of hell are locked from the inside meaning that everyone who is in hell chooses to be there. And he gives this crazy illustration in The Great Divorce, and if you've never read it before, I suggest reading it, because it will give you, especially if you're interested in this idea of heaven and hell, because it will give you incredible insight into why we reject God. And so he comes up with this kind of parable about these people who are in hell. They don't 
really know that they're in hell, and they take a magic school bus, or this like bus, and they go to heaven, okay? And when they're in heaven, each one of them steps off the bus, and they, for various reasons, reject the offer to enter into heaven. Because each single person that is offered the opportunity to go into heaven would have to give up the authority of their life. They would have to say, okay, I'm no longer in charge, and I'm going to give that up. And each single person said, I I don't want to do that. I'd rather go back to where I was before than have to do that and enter into heaven. And so in The Great Divorce, he says this, in the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help, but he has done so on Calvary. To forgive them, they will not be forgiven. To leave them alone, alas, I am afraid that this is what he does. And then he finishes with this. There are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find it. Those who knock, it is opened. See, we have this idea that hell is this place in which uh, God casts us into when we're screaming and kicking, going, no, get me out of here. But that's not what the scripture says about hell. We can see in uh, the interaction in the book of Luke where there's a rich man and he is cast into hell and he doesn't say, get me out of here. I want out of here right now. No, 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 no. He complains that he's uncomfortable. He says, no, no, no. I'm a rich man. I need to have the comforts like a rich person would. It's not that he wants to get out of hell. It's that he wants to be in charge while he's in hell. He wants the comforts that he had here on earth. And so the saying, it's better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven is actually pretty profound and true scripturally, is many of uh, our friends and our family, maybe even ourselves, we will choose to enter into hell because we would much rather continue to be in charge of our own lives than submit to our creator. And he finishes this verse with this. He says, but wisdom is proved right by her deeds. It's kind of the saying like the proof is in the pudding. It's like, okay, you want to be the authority of your life. Let's see how that plays out. Let's see how that plays out in your individual life, and let's see how that plays out in human history. And what happens is, and I've seen this personally, and I think uh, history can attest to this, is that as we uh, either submit to Christ or we reject him, there is going to be some really practical implications of how we're going to live and what our life will turn out to be. And by and large, and I don't think that this is an overstatement, Christians are the ones who have changed the world for the last 2,000 years. They have fought for human rights. They have fought for freedom. They are the ones who have a worldview that is coherent and consistent and able to uh, have these moral values and duties. And yet those who do not are, are on their own to make their own choices. And oftentimes, just like you and I, they make really bad choices. And so he says, let's see how this plays out. You be the authority of your life, and then let's compare that to the people who submit their authority to me. Then he describes, and this gets pretty harsh, is, um, and I was talking to Ryan about this because we were like looking at it because he's going to speak soon, and, and uh, he's like, dude, you always get the gnarliest verses, and then I get to come up and go, Jesus loves you, and I'm like, I know, frickin' A. Uh, anyway, all right, here we go. Here we go. It's about to get intense. Verse 20, then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. 
Woe to you, Cherozen. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repeated long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Okay, so if you got lost, here's what he said. He said, I went to all of these cities. I traveled around. People got to hear me teach. They got to ask me questions. And then they get to see me do miraculous things. And yet they still rejected me. And their punishment for rejecting me, because they had that knowledge, they knew the truth, the truth was standing in front of them, it is going to be more harsh than what had happened to these cities prior to me who were punished for their evil deeds. So let me give you an example. Sodom, if you've never heard of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, it's in the Old Testament, pretty gnarly story, and God ends up punishing Sodom because of their sexual immorality. In fact, he like rains down fire and then like oh, this lady gets turned into a pillar of salt. It's a bad deal, okay? And so everyone is destroyed in this city. And what Jesus says is um, that city, Sodom, the punishment is going to look light in comparison to those of you who heard the message of Jesus and rejected him. Now, this is uh, a pretty humbling and very scary idea what Jesus is saying here because what he's saying is that you and I are spiritually culpable. Now, if you don't understand this, and I'm not a legal scholar, I don't know much about the law, but in legal terms, culpability is the degree that a person is at fault for something that they have done wrong. So like the more that we know or the more intentional we are on committing a crime, the more culpable we are for it. And so you can see this in different examples. Um, This is why we punish uh, murder harsher than manslaughter because you're more culpable. You intended to murder someone, um, or you did not intend to murder, or did not intend to kill someone, but you did. And so you're going to get a harsher punishment because of your intention and your purpose. You you purposely murdered versus uh, unintentionally manslaughter. It's also true of kids and adults. Is the punishment for adults is going to be far more harsh than the punishment for kids, even if they do the same thing. Why? Because an adult is more culpable because they have more knowledge. They know better, or at least should know better. And so Jesus is saying that you and I, and everyone since uh, his, his life, are spiritually culpable. Meaning, the more we hear and know about Jesus, and, the, and, and if we continue to reject him, or we continue to uh, not submit our lives to him, the more culpable we are going to be. Now, this is pretty gnarly, okay? This is pretty scary stuff because he says, right now, you sitting in these seats, hearing this message, hearing the Bible, you are literally setting yourself up for a harsher judgment if you don't take it seriously and do something about it. Oh, attendance is going to drop next week, you know? Because, like, look, you're either going to set yourself up for an incredible blessing or a curse. Because as you get more knowledge, if you don't practice it, if you don't apply it, if it doesn't become real, you're setting yourself up for a harsher punishment. And so uh, Jesus also in here kind of says, look, depending on what you do with my message, you'll either, be, you'll either be blessed or you'll be cursed. You'll be blessed because the more you know about me, the more peace, the more hope, 
gratitude, love, compassion, the bigger impact that you're going to be able to make on the world. And that's an incredibly uh, big blessing, something that people before Christ didn't have. However, if you hear the message and reject it, or you do nothing with it, then you're setting yourself up for a harsher punishment. And he also says that there's going to be um, different levels of judgment. So this is kind of a popular question that I get sometimes, is people are always uh, intrigued by heaven and hell, rightfully so. And they constantly ask, so what do you think about hell? Is there like different levels of hell? Like there's like really hot fire and then like really hot fire? And I'm like, no, okay, that's not what hell is. But let's back up for a second. Um, Hell is not like fire and things like that. It's an eternal separation from God, which is worse than fire. And so, um, and so what it's saying here is, yes, there are different levels of hell. There are different levels of hell. Because those who did not hear about Christ and, yet, and rejected God are going to have less of a punishment than those who heard about Christ and yet rejected him. And we hate this idea, by the way. This is like so, if you're not a Christian, I get it. You're probably PO'd right now. You're like, this is why I don't go to church, right? <laughs> like, it's a hellfire and brimstone. I don't, I'm not into that. But you do actually want a God like this. Because this means that the God of the Bible is a just God. It means that there is justice in the end. Because here's what I know about you is when we talk about hell and you think about it for yourself, you think it's a horrible idea. But when we talk about hell and we talk about pedophiles and rapists and murderers and Hitler, you like the idea of hell. You say, yes, they should be there and it should be the worst thing you could experience. We just don't like to draw the line where we're on the wrong side of it. Everybody likes the idea of justice. Nobody wants to spend eternity in heaven with Hitler. And yet we hate the idea that we might be on the wrong side of it. And that's what the scripture talks about. It says, no, no, the line for heaven or hell is not um, like this scale in which like you've done more good than bad or you're a little bit better than most. Or, no, 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 it's a pass or fail. It's either you're perfect or you're not. And so if we're not perfect, which if you are, I'd love to talk to you. Um, if we're not perfect, that means that we're not getting in. And this is actually a good thing because it means there's justice in the end. So, let me get to the solution here, is uh, the solution I find, I don't know, I find it interesting, is we see the problem, we see what we're facing, we see the challenge, and I think the solution is that you must also see the tension. You have to see the tension in the world and in your own life. And I think that this tension is kind of what life is about, is life is a tension. It's this tension between a wedding and a funeral. See, Jesus gave these two examples. He says, celebration, happiest day, or mourning, sadness, the worst day. And life is kind of like that, right? You don't have to be a Christian to believe this. You can see that there is this tension in the world between a wedding and a funeral. Look at creation itself. It can be the most awe-inspiring, beautiful thing Right, I saw um, a video today on YouTube where it's like this, uh, this guy who travels around the world with GoPro, and they try to surf all these unique spots, and one of which was like Antarctica, which I heard is cold there. And so he's trying to surf these different spots, and he has these pictures, you know, where it's just magic, and you go, that is incredible. And yet, at the same time, that very same creation can destroy people. It's dangerous. It's destructive. And there's this tension between a wedding and a funeral, even in creation itself. You look at people. People, I think, are the best example of this. 
is people can do the most self-sacrificing, compassionate, and loving things where they're willing to give up their very life to help somebody, maybe that they don't even know. And yet, people also do the most harmful things, violent things. They hurt people. There's this wedding and this funeral thing going on. And it's not just people out there, it's us too, right? Where inside of us, we have these two parts where we have what we want to do, what we know we should do, what's good for us, and yet this other part that refuses to do it and goes the other way. There's this wedding and funeral tension within us. And see, all other worldviews say, uh, try to come up with a reason, an explanation, and a solution for this. And to come up with an explanation of why the world is like this and why we're like this, it's going to take more than just knowledge. It's going to take what the scripture here described as wisdom. See, knowledge is the gaining of information through experience and reasoning, but wisdom is explaining why things are the way that they are discerning what is right and wrong, good and bad. And the reason why I'm a Christian is because I think that the, the scripture is the best and really most comprehensive way in order to explain the tension that we see in ourselves and in the world. Because all other worldviews either try to do one of two things. They either try to deny or minimize the tension that we all see. So when they try to deny it, um, you see worldviews like, for example, Buddhism or atheism in which they say, no, 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 it's an illusion or it doesn't actually exist. That good and that evil, that's just opinions, that's just up to you, you know, morality is relative and so you kind of decide and so you may feel that way, but it's not actually that way. Or it's just an illusion, right? You just, you just have to overcome these emotions, we all go, no, 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 it's not an illusion. There really is good and there really is evil and it's an objectively real thing. And so that, I, I can't buy that worldview or other people try to minimize it. And this is probably where most of us are at is we try to say things like, well, yes, people make mistakes and sometimes we do things we shouldn't do. But to say that we're like inherently evil, <laughs> that's a little bit much, you know? We just make mistakes sometimes. Don't you make mistakes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not that big of a deal. But see, that minimizes the severity of what's happening within us and in the world, is when we try to minimize this tension and say, well, there's not really that much tension, it's just we make mistakes sometimes, is we have to explain the fact that evil has been done by every person in a political system, economic class, race, environment, and education. It transcends all of those things. So we can't say like, well, you know, if we had better education or if people had better self-esteem or better family life or whatever, they weren't genetically predisposed to do these certain things, then we, we wouldn't be so bad. But let me ask you this. If you fixed all of these issues, do you think that people would all of a sudden become morally perfect? Like, do you think that if Hitler had better self-esteem, he wouldn't have uh, caused the Holocaust? No. Because there's something more powerful than just those things. Yes, those things may help, but those are going to be a band-aid for the real issue. The real issue is something deeper. It's more profound. It's more powerful. The common denominator between all the evil that has been done by people in the world is that they're people. It doesn't matter what race they are. It doesn't matter how much money they have. It doesn't matter their education. It's, the common denominator is people are the problem. And that's what the scripture says. The scripture says there is this tension in the world, this funeral and this wedding. And it doesn't try to minimize it. It calls it what it is. There's good and there's evil. And it doesn't try to, to, uh, to deny it. It addresses it. It says that it is real. And then it comes up with not only an explanation, but a solution powerful enough to deal with it. 
Because this is what the scripture is all about. The scripture is all about this tension. So let's take the gospel, for example. The gospel is this tension between the best news ever and the worst news ever. It's the worst news ever because it says the reason why you don't do what you should do and the reason why um, there's so much evil in the world is because each human being is desperately wicked at their core. Like they are as bad as any murderer on death row. You and I, in our hearts, are that evil. And it says that we have to mourn over our sin. So go back to the funeral thing, is when it talks about this bad news, we should be as upset about the bad news of how desperately wicked we are, that we are want to mourn over the loss of the image that we had of ourselves. So most of us believe in our minds that we're good people, right? I'm a good person, I'm better than this person, you know, not quite as good as this person, but we won't think about that. And the scripture challenges us and says, you have to mourn the loss of this image that you had of yourself, that you're a good person. And you have to then realize that you are desperately wicked and evil at your core. And that's going to cause sadness. That's going to cause maybe even disparity. But it also sets us up for the incredible good news. The good news is that even though you are desperately wicked, the creator God still wants a relationship with you, that he still loves you, that he still wants to reconcile with you, that he wants to uh, make a way for you two to be in relationship and that he can remove that wickedness and allow you to become new. How is this possible? Let's look at the tension, the cross. The cross is a, is a place of tension as well because you have the worst event and the best event in all human history. Worst event, an innocent man, sinless, the only person to walk on this earth who did nothing wrong was murdered uh, ruthlessly for something he didn't do. And yet it's also the best thing that ever happened because he resurrected, he had conquered sin and death, and because of that, he took our punishment. How do we receive this forgiveness? Let's go to the tension. You have to do the easiest and hardest thing you've ever done before. It's the easiest thing because there is this thing, uh, this gift of salvation in which God offers us to be our savior, where Jesus takes our penalty and all we have to do is say yes, that's it. No amount of good works, there's nothing else that we have to earn, it's simply saying yes. Easiest thing that you could do is say yes to God. And yet it's the hardest thing you're ever going to do because it's the last thing that you want to do. You do not want to give up the keys to your life. You don't want to give up the authority to God. And so it's this tension between the easiest and the hardest thing. Why doesn't God just simply forgive and forget? Why does he have to go through all this cross and all this kind of craziness and the tension? Because we worship a God who is perfect. That means he is perfectly loving and compassionate and yet totally just. And so therefore has to punish evil deeds. And so the justice part of him says, in order to be perfect, I have to not just brush away wrongdoings or ignore them or turn a blind eye. I have to, as the perfect judge, judge those misdeeds. And yet at the same time, he says, but because I'm incredibly loving, I will make a way for you to pay those. In fact, I will pay those for you. See, the result of following Jesus, I think, is probably the most practical tension of all. The result of following Jesus is we are going to find freedom through submission, right? This tension in which we all desire freedom. We want to find ourselves. We want to find what we're made to do. We want to find this peace. We want to find hope. We want to find healing. And yet all of us are trying to find this through our own power and authority. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. If you want to find yourself, you have to lose yourself. 
If you want to be free from all of these things that are consuming you in life, that means you have to submit to me. And so Jesus calls us, he says, the ultimate tension here is if you want to find this freedom that you're looking for, stop trying to do it yourself. Stop trying to be your own authority. Stop trying to be your own God. You're never going to be able to know what you were made for, what your purpose is, how you can find true hope and healing if you continue to try to do it yourself because you didn't make you. I made you. And so I'm the one who has the answers. So some of us have been trying to uh, deny this tension, trying to get around this tension, trying to medicate this tension. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Let's call it what it is. And then we can begin to live in this tension with incredible hope and healing. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for how good you are to us. And uh, we thank you for just the incredible wisdom that are on these pages. Is at first glance, I know that when I read through these, I may be a little confused. and it's, it's, It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And yet, as I dig deeper into it, And the longer that I'm a pastor, the more I realize how incredibly wise these words are, how they explain so much of what's going on in the world and going on in our own hearts. And so, Lord God, some of us are are living in this place of tension in which we just can't seem to figure things out. We understand that life is good and yet life is hard and we're trying to manage that. And Lord God, you called us to not manage it ourselves, not try to overcome it in our own strength or try to figure out how we're going to make our lives work. You said that we are going to find the freedom that we're looking for through submission because you love us, because you care for us, because you want the best for us. And so, Lord God, some of us, we need to give up those, uh, those keys to our life and allow you to take control. And so, Lord God, we, uh, we may need to make that commitment tonight. And so, Lord, speak to us. Give us strength. Thanks for being so good to us. Amen.